0: The Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Our God and Father, we thank you that you brought to pass these events 2,000 years ago to change the destiny of the world through Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray, Lord, open all the wonder and the richness, and the meaning, the power of what you've done through these events. Help us understand that we would be filled with your beauty, your glory, your truth, and that we would live that out to your glory in this day, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I I said already, we've covered these basic events. We've looked at the people who were involved. But today we want to focus on the theological meaning and significance. And that is what Matthew is signaling to us through the prophecy that he quotes in verse 15, which is from Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now what Matthew is evoking here is the entire long and tortured history of the nation of Israel. And specifically the fact that even though Israel had been miraculously and powerfully delivered by God through the exodus from captivity to Pharaoh, she had almost immediately turned back to the idols of Egypt And this would prove to be a trend with Israel going forward. Indeed, if we read carefully about Israel's time in Egypt, we see that she began worshiping idols in Egypt. She turned away from the Lord in Egypt, and that was part of the context that led to the rise of the evil Pharaoh who oppressed her. And then even after the exodus after she's been delivered, brought across the Red Sea on dry ground, has gone through the desert, and has come into the promised land, even there, Joshua has to warn the people. Joshua 24, 14. Fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river. That is the River Jordan. And in Egypt. Now what... Joshua's rebuking the people for is not only did the people serve idols in Egypt, but they continued to serve them after God brought them out in the exodus. You recall the golden calf incident at Mount Sinai. How quickly. This is very shortly after God has brought them across the Red Sea on dry ground and drowned Pharaoh's Army, but how quickly the people turned back away from God who just delivered them back to their idols. And that pattern would continue with Israel during her time in the desert, even though the text, the account of of those years, the idolatry is not so obvious as the golden calf incident was. It was kept more out of sight. Nevertheless, Their idolatry persisted. Listen to Stephen in Acts chapter 7, starting at verse 42. He's talking about this very issue. God gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as written in the book of the prophets. And he quotes Amos chapter 5. God says, did you offer me sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god rimphan images which you made to worship and i will carry you away beyond babylon in other words this trend away from the one, from the one true god toward idols and all of the practices that always go along with idolatry sexual immorality Sexual perversion, ultimately some form of child sacrifice. That whole cocktail of paganism continued to afflict Israel throughout her history. And all of this was true despite the many objective blessings that God gave to Israel. Binding himself to Israel in a covenant bond giving her the sign of circumcision in the covenant meal, placing his presence in her tabernacle, writing his law on her books, structuring her entire society himself, teaching her his wisdom. All of these blessings and many more did not suffice to alter Israel's pattern of turning away from God. And this over time led God to discipline Israel by giving her over to her own choices. And that then resulted in the erosion of blessings, the erosion of freedom, the erosion of prosperity. It resulted in increased threat and aggravation from foes. And it resulted ultimately to a return to captivity. Israel ending up back in another Egypt. First, it was the Midianites and the Philistines who were oppressing Israel during the times of the judges. Then, after a brief time of blessing, prosperity, and freedom under David and Solomon, the kingdom was divided north and south under Solomon's son. And that was due to what? Solomon's multiplication of wives which was done in that day to make alignments and treaties with various nations. But what did that do? It imported idolatry into Israel. And subsequently, both the northern and the southern kingdoms followed the same downward trend toward unfaithfulness so that they both landed up right where they started in captivity to a new Egypt. It wasn't geographical Egypt. It was a different nation. For the northern kingdom, it was the Assyrian Empire who took them captive in 722 B.C. For the southern kingdom of Judah, it was the Babylonian Empire that took them captive in 605 B.C. and then ultimately destroyed Jerusalem in the temple in 586 B.C. And even though the southern kingdom had been allowed to return to Jerusalem about 70 years later, faithfulness to God continued to be a real struggle, which is why you see Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophet Malachi having to continually exhort the people to serve the Lord in truth and sincerity And to obey His word. Stop offering the Lord injured animals. In other words, stop taking the Lord lightly and His worship lightly. Stop grumbling against the Lord. Stop divorcing your wives unjustly. Stop withholding your tithes from the Lord. And you see, all of these kind of behaviors flow from unbelief and serving yourself or some other false god. And all of these downward trends, even though you also always had faithful, godly, individual Israelites, such as Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Miriam, many others like that, Joseph and Mary, Zacharias and Elizabeth. You always had faithful, godly, individual Israelites. But we're talking about the nation as a whole the nation as a whole was characterized by this downward trend of unfaithfulness which, with limited exception, would would really chart the course of Israel all the way to the time of Christ. And during the same period, with limited exception, Israel never came out from under the dominion of one pagan empire after another. First it was the Babylonians, and then it was the Persians, and then it was the Greeks, and finally it was the Romans. And so you see, by the time of Christ, by the time of the events of the Gospel of Matthew in our text, there was widespread agreement among Israelites, including much of the leaders, that Israel was still in captivity, and she needed a new exodus, she needed a new deliverance. And that, by the way, is what is being typologically uh, indicated when, for example, John the Baptist starts his ministry by going out to the Jordan River and preaching a message of repentance. Why is he going out to the Jordan River? Because that's how the people came into the land. He's indicating there needs to be a new entrance into the promised land. There needs to be a new exodus. That's what he was saying by the geography. So there was this widespread agreement. There was also widespread agreement that God had promised to provide a new exodus through the long-awaited Messiah. That is what the Messiah was going to do. And remember, Messiah is simply the Hebrew word for the Greek word Christ. Both of them mean the anointed one. But if you were going to put them in English, the closest word we would have is king. If you heard Messiah or Christ, anointed one, there were all the priests were anointed. There were a lot of anointed. But if you said anointed one to an Israelite... They think of King David. David the shepherd king. He was the Christ. He was the anointed one. That's the picture. A new shepherd king to lead Israel. That was promised in the Messiah. So all there was widespread agreement over all this. So where did the disagreement and the controversy come in? What was it that led to Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, being crucified. It was the answer to some related questions. Number one, what is the true nature of Israel's captivity? Number two, exactly what kind of exodus is the Messiah going to provide? And number three, what is Israel going to look like on the other side of that exodus? It's the answer to those three questions that introduced the controversy. Indeed, Jesus' answers to those questions, which is what Matthew was signaling to us in our text, it was the kind of thing that could get you killed in the first century, and indeed it is a big part of what united the feuding factions of Israel's leadership to frame Jesus in a court proceeding and then pressure the romans to crucify him so let's look at these three questions and jesus's answers to them and the effect they had the question number 1 is what is the true nature of israel's captivity and the answer that jesus gave see signaled in our text is that israel's captivity at its root is not a political bondage to some human pharaoh who rules by military might but bondage of the very heart to the ultimate pharaoh Satan who rules by the power of sin and death in other words human tyranny may be real and it may be a problem but it is not the root of tyranny the root of tyranny is the ultimate Pharaoh, the cosmic Pharaoh, Satan, who rules directly upon the heart by the power of sin and death. In Second Timothy two twenty-five and 26, Paul says that fallen man has been taken captive. There's captivity. He's been taken captive by the devil to do his will so that for fallen man to turn to God... God must act. He must act first. God must grant repentance, grant the power for this man to turn in the direction, out of the direction where he's headed and turn toward the living God. God must open his eyes to know the truth, to receive the truth, to stop suppressing the truth. And God must bring him to his senses now, Matthew makes the very same point in our text in a, very clever, in a very clever way in how he applies Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Now, Matthew, in verse 15, he quotes the last days of that verse. I'm going to read the whole thing. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called him son. But notice that in the new Exodus story, Matthew is calling our attention to here, the new Exodus story being written by the Messiah. It's the same Exodus story in one sense, and yet all the parts have been changed. And that's what made it controversial. The new Pharaoh is not Pharaoh king of geographical Egypt but Herod, the king of the Jews. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh is the one who killed Israel's baby boys to prevent the rise of a deliverer. Well, who's killing the baby boys in the New Testament to snuff out the deliverer? It's not Pharaoh king down in Cairo, Egypt. It's Herod, king of the Jews in Jerusalem. But Revelation chapter 12 tells us, That Herod was only the human Pharaoh. The ultimate Pharaoh was the one manipulating Herod to kill the baby boys. Revelation 12, starting in verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon. Verse 4. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. This is talking about the birth of Christ. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. That is a succinct way of summing up the entire first advent of Christ. He goes from birth to ascension. But he tells us that the effort to kill the child at birth was being driven by the fiery red dragon whom he identifies in verse 9. The great dragon was that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. So we know who Pharaoh is. We have an earthly Pharaoh and we have the ultimate Pharaoh who is the devil, who doesn't need to take over people's wills. When you have people who, by virtue of their fallen state, Uh, have an antipathy toward God and aversion toward God, who want to suppress the truth toward God, who want to live autonomously, who want to be their own self-law and their own ultimate authority and their own ultimate God. Well, that's exactly the mindset of Satan. Which makes it extremely easy for Satan to manipulate such people. He doesn't need to take over their will. It's easy for him to manipulate them. And so you will see interesting things in Scripture, like the fact that on the eve of the crucifixion of Jesus, when he's, uh, when he's appearing before the Sanhedrin for his trial, and then he's sent Uh, to Pilate and Pilate sends him to Herod and then Herod sends him back to Pilate we're told interestingly in the text that Pilate and Herod did not like one another they were political enemies they did not like one another until that day on that day they became friends on that day of all day, on the day that they needed to become friends to put Jesus on the cross wouldn't you know They became friends. Now that's the dragon manipulating people who are fundamentally like him anyway in their mindset, which is easy for him to do. So we know who the new Pharaoh is in the new Exodus story. The question is, where is the new Egypt in this Exodus story? Well, the answer is, it's not geographical Egypt, it's Israel. Look at Revelation 11, verse 8, where it refers to the great city, which spiritually is called, not geographically, spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Where was our Lord crucified? Not in Cairo, not in Rome, not in Babylon. In Jerusalem. So out of Egypt I call my son. In the text of Matthew. If you pay careful attention. Matthew says out of Egypt I call my son was fulfilled. When Jesus is taken out of Israel to Egypt. Not when he is brought back out of Egypt to Israel. Think about it. In the old Exodus, Moses fled Egypt to keep from being killed by Pharaoh. And then when Pharaoh had died, God told him to return to Egypt. In the new Exodus story, Jesus must be taken out of Israel to keep from being killed by Herod, Herod, the new human Pharaoh. And then when Herod is dead, God tells Joseph to take Jesus back to Israel. So delivered from Egypt. Israel must be delivered from herself. That's the point that's being made. Because she's carrying her chains of bondage around with her in her own heart. Wherever she goes, there they are. And that's why she always is trending toward unfaithfulness. And that brings us to question number two. What kind of exodus is the Messiah going to provide? And the answer is, in the new exodus, the Messiah must deliver Israel from the ultimate Pharaoh who rules by the power of sin and death. All other forms of tyranny in this world, and there are many, and they're all problems, but all of them are downstream from the ultimate uh, uh, tyranny of the Pharaoh who rules by the power of sin and death. Now, we need to see in this regard, we're calling this an exodus, but we need to see that those are precisely the terms that Jesus thought in. Look at Luke chapter 17 and verse 29. Now, this is what is known as the Mount of Transfiguration, Because Jesus took three of his disciples up on this mount, and while uh, praying, his glory is disclosed to them. It says, his appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Now, what are they talking to Jesus about? It says, about his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, of course, it's talking about his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. It calls it a decease. What's interesting is that the Greek word there is literally Exodus. They were talking to him about the Exodus which he was about to accomplish through his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. Now, this is why it was necessary for God the Son. To become one of us in the incarnation. It was necessary for him to go to the cross. Offering himself to the father in perfect worship and obedience. Offering himself for us as the perfect atoning sacrifice. It was necessary for him to enter the grave and the abode of the dead. And to conquer death by rising again. It was the only way, you see, to provide the exodus that Israel and the rest of the human race needed. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verse 17. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now you see, Jesus didn't have to do any of that if Israel just needed a deliverance from a human pharaoh such as the emperor of Rome. But if they had gotten that kind of a deliverer, a great political and military leader who was able to break the yoke of Rome, it would have left Israel and the rest of mankind in the fundamental captivity to Satan, sin, and death. But because of the work of Christ... There is that, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. For the law, and here he's using law in the way that we use it when we talk about the law of gravity. When we talk about the law of gravity, we're not talking about a statute That's written on a book down at the Capitol. We're talking about a reigning force. The law of gravity. A reigning force that exercises power over us. Whether we want it to or not. Whether we acknowledge it or not. That's what he means. The law, the reigning power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Has made me free from the reigning power of sin and death. This was exactly what the covenant was meant to do. It was meant to rectify the old covenant. Where the presence of God was with God's people. But it was over there in the tabernacle. It was not in here. The new covenant was to take the presence of God from being right over there. And bringing it right in here. And... The new covenant was to take the law of God which is right over there in the tabernacle on tablets of stone and put it right in here on this tablet of stone turning this tablet of stone into a heart of flesh It says in Jeremiah 31:33 but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days says the Lord I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be their people. They shall be my people. That's what is needed for us to have a true relationship with God. The presence of God and the word of God, the law of God, have to go from right over there to in here. So this becomes a temple of living stones, of living people. Listen to how Revelation chapter 12 describes the same events concerning the first advent of Christ. Revelation 12 starting at verse 5. We've already read a few of these verses to identify the real true Pharaoh. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. That is the ascension of Christ. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. You see, prior to the ascension of Christ, based on his death and resurrection, Satan had access to the throne room of God in heaven. We see this in books such as Job. Do you ever notice how you have Satan's just come strolling right into the presence of God? The angels are gathered, and here comes Satan coming right in there. Well, what is he doing in the throne room of God? Well, the throne room of God for kings is also the courtroom. And Satan had a valid case. He had a valid judicial case against Adam and his race and a valid judicial claim for rightful jurisdiction over man and the earth. Satan could truthfully charge before God, Adam didn't listen to your word, he listened to my word. And Adam obeyed me, not you. And Adam imitated my character, not yours. Therefore, by all rights, Adam is my son, not yours. And I have rightful jurisdiction over Adam, the human race, and the earth that you have placed under them. After the ascension of Christ, Satan no longer had a valid case. For Christ, the new Adam, had triumphed where the old Adam had failed. And Christ had rightful claim to jurisdiction over man and the earth. Read in the book of Luke when Satan tempts Jesus and he offers him all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus will worship Satan. Satan explains, all of this has been given to me and I give it to whomever I wish. When he says it has been given to him, the word is a judicial word. It means it has been granted to him by a higher authority, and especially a judicial authority. This is not something Satan stole. It was judicially given to him by a higher authority, that is God himself, because he had a valid claim. With the ascension of Jesus Christ, Satan has no more case. He has no more claim. And when you have no more case, you have to leave the courthouse. Satan refused, and so he was thrown out. He does not come strolling into God's throne room anymore because he has no case. And he has no place there. And that brings us to question number three. What is Israel going to look like on the other side of the new Exodus? And the answer that Jesus in the New Testament gives is that Israel is Jesus and all of those Jew and Gentile who believe in him. Just as in the old Exodus, Israel was Moses and all those Jew and Egyptian who believed and followed him. Moses was the human representative of God the Son who was appearing in the glory cloud, who sent Moses into Egypt. Moses was the Christ type. And so Israel was defined by Moses. Israelites who did not believe the word of God through Moses who did not obey that word, who did not sacrifice the Passover lamb, who did not put the blood over the doorpost, who did not follow Moses out, they were treated just like Egyptians. On the other hand, Egyptians, who by God's grace during this whole process said, you know what, Moses speaks the truth. And the God of Moses, that's the true God. We're going where Moses goes. We're going to tag along. We're going with him because he speaks the truth and his God is the true God. There was a whole mixed multitude, we're told, Exodus twelve thirty seven and 38. A whole mixed multitude, a bunch of Egyptians came out with Israel because they believed the word of Moses and they were following him. And they were treated as part of Israel. So what was the defining characteristic in the end of the analysis? Was it a matter of ethnicity? Was it whose blood was in your veins? Did that determine your destiny? No. Faith determined your destiny. And so it will be in the new covenant. Jesus is Israel. All those who believe in him become part of Israel, whether they are Jew or Gentile. So as we draw to a close this morning, I just want to reflect for a moment once again on this long and torturous history of Israel. It's important for us to remember, first of all, That Israel was by God's calling and design a priestly nation which meant she was a representative nation. Remember God formed Israel from Abraham shortly after he had divided the languages of the human race and divided the human race into different uh, nations in order to hold down the kind of evil that was manifesting itself at the Tower of Babel. But by dealing with this one nation, uh, the nation of Israel, God was not limiting salvation to her. He was dealing with the whole world by dealing with this one nation because Israel was a microcosm of mankind. And as such, she served two vital purposes in the providence and the wisdom of God. The first we get very readily which was to show the way of salvation by faith in Christ. Not only was Israel the stock from which God brought the Christ into the world, but Israel showed the way of faith. It was Israel through which God displayed all the various types of Christ. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Samson, David, Solomon, and others. It was through Israel that God displayed what saving faith was looks like abraham and sarah hannah zacharias elizabeth joseph mary and many others but there was another vital purpose of god through israel that we often miss and that was to show the absolute necessity of salvation through faith in christ because there was no other way the iron grip of Satan's sin and death could not be broken by any amount of privileges or societal benefits apart from the death and resurrection of Christ. All of our problems, societally, politically, economically, educationally, all of those are relevant All of them are important. The Bible speaks to every single one of them. It gives us principles that we need to apply to all of them. But none of them are capable of being what they should be apart from the fundamental tyranny of life being fixed. And that is the tyranny of Satan who rules through the iron grip of sin and death exercised directly on the human heart. Affecting what we love, what we hate, what we want, what we don't. Bending us this way and that because of an inner aversion to God. A desire to suppress the truth about Him. And a desire to live autonomously from Him. All other tyrannies and captivities, they're all bad. The Bible speaks to all of them. It tells us what to do. But they're all downstream from that great cosmic tyranny so apart from us being delivered from that tyranny we cannot be delivered for very long from any lesser tyranny that's why only the spirit of christ taking up residence within us making us the temple of god can break the reigning power of satan sin and death and for jesus to send his spirit to dwell in us He had to become one of us. Offer himself on the cross. Descend into the abode of the dead. Defeat death. Rise in glorified life for which we were created. Ascend into heaven. Sit down on the throne of God with heaven and earth made subject to him. Apart from that, there is no hope for Israel or the world. But because of Christ... The great tyrant has been defeated, and the great captivity is over. We are the people of the new Israel. This is the life and the truth that we must carry forth into the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.